Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 3? Mark chapter 3. If you're just visiting uh, with us this evening, we're going through the gospel of Mark uh, throughout this year, and it'll take us through uh, probably next summer. And so bits and pieces of Jesus' story as we get to know Jesus a little bit better. We've noted that Mark is trying to get us to understand Jesus sort of the way he might have appeared to first century folks. He starts out with a blanket statement that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so we take that, that he's going to prove that to us. But then he drops all talk from his own voice, from Mark's voice, and simply allows the events of the day to introduce us to this man, Jesus. And so we're kind of put into the sandals of the people of that day and saying, what, how did he appear to others? Who, who was this, this masked man, as we said at one point? And as we have been looking through the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus is, is introduced. He, uh, on the scene by John the Baptist, he comes with the same uh, theme that John does, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. It's here, it's at hand, saying that the kingdom of God has come in him. And then we see his, where he gets the authority to say that at his baptism with the Father and the Spirit there, and he proves that authority even over Satan in the temptations of Satan. And then we just start seeing Jesus walking around beginning his ministry, teaching with authority, healing casting out demons who have no choice but to obey him, and having some skirmishes running afoul a little bit of the religious leaders of that day. And all of this uh, kind of builds pressure on Jesus, it seems. Uh, certainly, the, the healings and, and the other miracles that Jesus does, uh, he gains in popularity and, and crowds start coming to him. In addition, you've got the pressure of religious leaders that uh, were told at the very end of the last uh, words that we read in Mark 3, verse 6, began to plot how they might kill him. So there, were, there was a lot of pressure on Jesus. Uh, again, Jesus is, he, was fully human. He's given aside some of his, set aside some of his godness for the time while he is on earth, and so he felt the stress, so he felt the pressures of the day. So let's uh, look at just two stories that are really, really fit with this whole idea of the pressure that Jesus was under. And they're found in verses 7 through 19, verses 7 through 19 of chapter 3. There we read, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, talking about the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called 
to, the, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We'll conclude our reading at that point. Let's open with prayer. Holy Spirit, as you inspired Mark to, to write these words down, to write them down faithfully and fully inspired by you, we pray now that you would inspire them to us, that you would help us to, to understand what we might learn from Jesus and how we might live uh, more and more Christ-like lives. We pray it in his name. Amen. One variation of the old spiritual, which Susan actually played this evening in the prelude, goes, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. But sometimes we may wonder, does Jesus really know the trouble I've seen? Does Jesus really understand the pressure we're under? The demands of our job with long hours and the pressure to perform. The demands of school with tests and papers, not to mention pressure from our peers. The demands of managing a household and having to be three places at once. The pressure of getting older, balancing medications and doctor's visits with a limited income. The pressures of parenting, financial limitations, people's expectations, even the pressures of the Christian life. Does Jesus really know the pressure I've seen? Well, Mark 2 and 3 show Jesus under pressure from two sources, really. The first is the religious leaders with whom his clashes are growing more heated. His supposed blasphemy, claiming to forgive sins, Consorting with criminals and moral degenerates like Levi and his IRS buddies, eating with sinners, and his flouting of rabbinic traditions, have led the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians, or the Pharisees, Herodians, and chief priests, many of whom were Sadducees, to actually consider murder. We see already in chapter 3, verse 6. Now think about that. The Pharisees, Herodians, and chief priests were all theological enemies. In the first century, the Jews understood that with the Romans over them, they were in exile even though they were in their own country, and they knew that being in exile was a result of their sin and God's punishment on them. And they all were asking the question, how do we remedy that? And each different group came up with their own remedy. For the Pharisees... It was study the Torah, learn and, and seek to live the law. And if we can live the law perfectly, then maybe God will, will come with his kingdom. The Herodians had simply given up on that, and they just joined forces with, 
with uh, Herod the king, Herod Antipas in this case, uh, and the Romans. And the chief priests, well, they were all about the temple uh, worship and all about the temple economy, and they guarded that jealously with their lives, and, and Jesus was threatening that in many ways, and that's why they were pressuring him. So to have these, these people that were, were really enemies of each other in, in very many ways, or at least not very close theologically, to all join forces to come at Jesus says a lot about how he was stepping on the toes of lots of different people. Pressure. The pressure was immense. So they watched his every move and gave every word he said the worst possible interpretation. They tried to trip him up with trick questions and stir the crowd against him, and it's even going to get worse in the next section, which we'll look at next Sunday. And of course, being truly human, the hatred and pressure undoubtedly hurt Jesus. And so we read that he removes himself, withdraws from Capernaum, and went out into the countryside along the seashore. But he had limited success in being alone because of another pressure, and that second pressure is the one we're going to look at this evening, his popularity with people. His popularity with the people. That's the pressure we turn to this evening. Now, have you ever dreamed of popularity? Have you ever dreamed of being popular? Maybe you see celebrities trying to avoid the spotlight and you want to say, hey, just enjoy it while you have it. But if you've ever seen the crowds pressing in on sports stars or movie stars or rock stars, crushing them for an autograph or violating their privacy for a photograph, you might begin to start to understand the pressure that was on Jesus. The crowds that now press on Jesus as he moves to this new area are not just the the locals who might have numbered in the tens of thousands, but having heard about Jesus' previous miracles and healings, people were traveling hundreds of miles from Jerusalem and Judea, which was about 80, 90 miles from the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was teaching, even farther to the south, Idumea, which is a land where Herod the Great came from, just south of of Israel, maybe 150-plus miles away, to Tyre and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, way up uh, to the north, the northwest, Gentile territory, and the Transjordan across across the Sea of Galilee to the east, which was also Gentile territory, pagan territory. The geographical area is surprisingly wide for all these people to come flocking around Jesus early in his ministry from every point of the compass. And people who have traveled so far won't be denied. So we read that they were crowding him, but literally the word means crushing him, surging forward to touch him, not for autographs, but for healing. Add to that his encounters with the demon-possessed who might react in any number of violent ways. Did you ever notice that the demons were strangely attracted to Jesus? He was their conqueror, and they knew it, and yet they kept coming. Kind of like protesters at the rally of an opposition candidate. They were hurling names at Jesus as if trying to pick a fight. 
Ironically, it was the demons who truly recognized Jesus, not the crowds, at least at first. And yet Jesus silenced them, as we see again in this story, because they were not the appropriate agents of revelation about Jesus. But also this is part of the the messianic secret that we find in Mark. Jesus is constantly saying, don't tell anyone. He had, had avoided open proclamation of being the Messiah, of being God, the the messianic and divine titles, which might be misunderstood and thus fan the flames of revolutionary hope. He was not, as many of the Jews thought he would be, a political Messiah, a revolutionary, but rather a servant, even though king of God's kingdom. But Jesus' real purpose at this point was to preach the good news that the kingdom of God had come in a special way in him. Physical healing was only secondary. Physical healing didn't happen for everybody in Jesus' day. It was used as a way to, for, for Jesus to make clear who he was so that they would hear his message. The trouble is the people weren't listening to his words. They wanted healing and miracles. So here's an additional pressure. Jesus has an urgent message and nobody listened. The crush of the crowds made it extremely difficult also to teach and make disciples. He was helping people but being abused for it. And since he was also fully human, Jesus undoubtedly felt inescapable stress and strain. And so I think in answer to that question, does Jesus really know the pressure we've seen? I think we can say Jesus is just the Savior and mediator for the 21st century. He does understand the pressure treadmill that most of us race on day after day. And not only the constant pressures of home or school or job, but maybe particularly the pressures we feel when we try to reach out to others, open ourselves up to them, and are misused or abused. We give to one charity and get phone calls from dozens more. We help one person and others line up to be next. We lend an empathetic ear and get two ears full. He understands. Not to mention the pressure of living a life of faith in a culture that doesn't share our values. And so whenever we're under pressure, we can remember Jesus. He was pressured so much, he had a getaway boat at the ready. But while it's important to know that Jesus understands pressure so that he can intercede with the Father for us in our pressures, it may be even more important for us to see how he managed pressure. And so in verses 13 through 19, we see Jesus taking three distinct steps. First of all, he understood the need for silence. And so we read in verse 13 that Jesus went up on a mountainside. The first thing Jesus does is he heads for the hills. He got away by himself. He not only silenced the demons, but he saw the need for silence himself. Our our world today just doesn't understand 
that need at times for silence and solitude, that need at times to be alone. As Anne Morrow Lindbergh writes, anything else will be accepted as a better excuse. If one sets aside time for a business appointment, a trip to the hairdresser, a social engagement, or a shopping expedition, that time is accepted as inviolable. But if one says, I cannot come because that's my hour to be alone, one is considered rude, egotistical, or strange. What a commentary that on our civilization when one has to apologize for it, make excuses, hide the fact that one practices it like a secret vice. As one commentator said, reflecting in the King James language, if we do not follow Christ's example to, to come apart, we may just come apart. We need silence. We need to be alone. We, we need to get away at times from the maddening crowds, stroll through the park or the village, meditate in the church sanctuary, stop at a rest area, take a few moments in an empty room. But Jesus didn't just get alone to be quiet, to have silence, because he also understood the need for communion. And so Jesus undoubtedly prayed. Now, this passage doesn't say it. Mark doesn't give us that detail, but every time we see Jesus heading for the hills in the Gospels, we find him praying to the Father. And in fact, if you look at the parallel passages in, uh, in the other Gospels, right before Jesus calls his disciples, we see him praying in each of those cases. So it must have happened here as well. We find him praying to the Father. That's probably the primary reason he went off by himself. The need for communion with God. George MacDonald once asked, if God loves us so much and knows all our needs, why must we pray? And he answered it this way, what if he knows prayer to be the thing we need first and most? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, endless need, the need of himself? What if the good of all our smaller and lower needs lies in this, that they help drive us to God? Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other needs. Prayer is the beginning of that communion, and some need is the motive of that prayer. Our wants are for the sake of our coming into communion with God, our eternal need. But Jesus not only saw the need for silence and the need for communion with the Father, he also saw the need for shared ministry. Jesus saw the, the wisdom of sharing responsibility for ministry with others. While he needed time alone, while he needed time with the Father, he also had need for companions, for fellowship, for support, for sharing the workload, for sharing the same purposes, for sharing his life. Did you notice the, why Jesus called his disciples? That they might be with him. That they might be with him. That was the most important thing. That's what a disciple is, someone who is with their rabbi and simply learns by being with them. Now, while Jesus had many disciples, we know at least at one point, 70, he chose 12 as an inner circle. They came to know Jesus, and he taught them by word and example. 
and would eventually take over his ministry on earth once he ascended into heaven. We all know the story, says Kent Hughes. Wavering, inconsistent Simon becomes Peter, the rock. James and John and James become Bonerges, the sons of thunder, dynamic apostles. Anonymous average Andrew became the patron saint of three nations. Thomas the skeptic became a tenacious man of faith. Simon, the radical, subversive zealot, became a man truly zealous for God. Loathsome Levi became the writer of the gospel of the Son of Man. And, of course, Judas, whom Mark reminds us already in chapter 3 will betray him. It's interesting that in chapter 6, in Mark, there's already this plot to murder him and by, chap- by verse 19 of the same chapter, they already have an accomplice who will betray him. Why? Why does Mark mention it now? Well, perhaps this mention of the betrayer shows Jesus' control over the situation, God's control. They already know long before it ever happens this is going to happen. But I think it also hints at an even greater pressure to come that this plot to murder was not just idle words, idle thoughts. And the disciples that are learning from Jesus are also learning how to handle similar pressures to come for them. As he would remind them, those pressures will come. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And that lesson continues for we disciples. Of all people, Jesus knows the trouble I've seen. Jesus knows the pressure you and I have seen and are under. As a human being, he felt the stress and strain and the maddening crowds and the scrutinizing Pharisees. As our mediator and high priest, he empathizes with us and intercedes for us with the Father because he's been there. He knows, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We're reminded, Jesus knows the trouble I've seen. He knows the pressures we're under. And he's the one who sits at the right hand of the Father and brings all our needs, all our pressures to him. But he also gives us insight in how to manage the pressures of life. He reminds us by his own example, we need to get away to times and places of silence at times to relieve some of the pressure. We need to pray and find God bringing grace to our pressured lives. And we need to share our lives and our ministry, whether that ministry is witnessing, parenting, 
or simply trying to live the Christian life. Fellowship with other believers helps diffuse the pressure and give us healthy perspective on life. So whenever you feel under pressure, know that you are also under the grace of Jesus Christ, the one who called his disciples and us to come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to him and learn the true meaning of grace under pressure. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace under pressure. Most of all, we thank you for your grace, your saving grace, first of all, that allows us to be in relationship with the Father through what you have done, paying the penalty for our sin. But a saving grace that also uh, assures us that you show us grace in other ways as well, including the grace of knowing what we're going through and bringing our intercessions to the Father. Lord, we pray that we might come to really understand and feel and experience your grace in this coming week for all the things that are on our plates, all the things that might still yet come. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.